We're continuing this morning in our sermon series through the New Testament book of Romans. We're picking back up in chapter 4 where we started last week. And Paul is keeping his focus on the patriarch Abraham. He's using Abraham as an example of someone who was counted righteous because of his faith in God's promise. And so in today's passage, what we are doing is we will see how timing matters. As Paul tells us that Abraham's faith in God's promise happened before he was circumcised and before the law was given to Moses. Now, to us, that may seem like, well, that is super fun historical information. Yes, it is, if you think that's fun. But it is also precedent for people who come to have faith in God. And so we're going to consider why this timing is so important, not just for Abraham and for the Jewish people, but even for us today. So if you would, open up your Bibles. We're going to be in Romans chapter 4. Verses 9 through 17, as we've been looking at Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. And we come to you acknowledging that we do not always get your word right. We can be bored by your word. We can simply be disinterested in your word. We can even just simply not understand what is in your word. And so, God, we pray that you would speak clearly today. 
Lord, use me in spite of my own sins to be faithful in the proclamation of Your Word, explaining and applying it clearly and faithfully, O God. We pray that You would give us ears to hear, that You would help us to be alert and attentive, that You, O God, would open our hearts and minds, that You would work by Your Spirit and Your Word in answer to our prayer, that Your Word would accomplish its purpose in us, instructing us, correcting us, and leading us in the truth to strengthen our faith in Christ and in Him alone. It's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to this passage this morning that deals with Abraham and circumcision and the law, we need to remember that one of the biggest issues that the first generations of Christians had to address was how does Christianity relate to Judaism? After all, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who came to the Jewish people in fulfillment of Jewish scriptures. All of his disciples were Jewish. He ministered primarily to the Jewish people in the Jewish land. He died in the capital of the Jewish nation on their highest holy holiday of the Jewish religion. And so you start to wonder, well, so is Jesus only for Jewish people? And that's really the gist of Paul's question in verse 9. Is this blessing only available to the Jews, to those who are circumcised? And this blessing is the blessing of justification that we talked about last week, that God does not count our sins against us, but He counts Christ's righteousness to us. Now to us, thinking about this question, is Jesus only for Jewish people? I would like to think that all of us kind of think the answer is pretty obvious because we're living 2,000 years later. And it seems like, well, yeah, he's not just for Jewish people. But thinking back to those first generations, to a predominantly Jewish group of people who believed in Jesus, you could see how they might presume that being Jewish was this kind of necessary prerequisite to become Christian. That in order to believe in this Jewish Messiah, maybe you needed to become Jewish first. An issue of timing. That you need to do these Jewish things and then get to Jesus. And so that's what our passage is about today. It's dealing with two of the most distinctive markers of the Jewish people and how their timing relates to Abraham. Those Jewish markers are the practice of circumcision and their adherence to the law given to Moses. And so we're going to see how does that timing fit with Abraham. So in verses 9 through 12, Paul addresses the question, how does circumcision relate to Abraham's justification? That's what he asks, verses 9 and 10. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. So, our Old Testament reading told us that the sign of circumcision was established in Genesis chapter 17. Abraham was 99 years old at that point. But, if you think back to last week or look a little earlier in Romans 4, Paul quoted this verse from Genesis that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That was his faith. 
And that verse was from Genesis chapter 15. So as Paul writes here, Abraham had faith and was counted as righteous well before this practice of circumcision happened. So that means his circumcision had nothing to do with why he was counted righteous before God. Okay, so that's the timing. But then what's the point of circumcision? A question I have to imagine has been asked many times in the history of the world. And so Paul tells us in verse 11, He, that is Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So Paul uses those two words we talked about with the kids. They start with S, sign, and seal. A sign means that something points beyond itself. And a sign should not be confused with the thing it signifies. So I want you to think you're driving down the road and you see this for sale sign outside of a house. It's that, you know, realtor sign and it's got for sale and you drive by and you're like, man, I don't want to buy that. And you go knock on the door of the house and you're like, hey, I see it's for sale. How much is it? And they tell you, you know, however many hundred thousand dollars it seems. And you're like, oh, really? For the sign? I just like the sign. Can I buy that? It has a for sale sign on it. I would like to buy the sign. And they'd look at you like you're an idiot because that's not what's for sale. That sign signifies this other, the house is what is for sale. And similarly, just like you can't pop a ring on somebody and say you're married now, you can't just take a for sale sign Plop it in a house that you'd like to buy, then show up at their door and say, I see your house is for sale. Can I buy that? That's not how it works. You can't sign something into existence in that way. You, can, you must wait to buy such a thing because that confuses signs and the things signified. And so circumcision points beyond itself to some spiritual truth. It signifies the righteousness that Abraham had by faith even before he was circumcised. And so Paul writes, it is a sign, but it is also a seal of this righteousness. Again, it is not the aquatic animal. A seal is an authenticating stamp like you would find on any notarized document. Circumcision was like God's notarizing stamp on Abraham's faith, assuring Abraham that his faith had surely been counted as righteousness. Now again, let's imagine something silly and dumb. Let's imagine you receive a letter in the mail this week and it says it's from the NFL. And inside you find two tickets to the Super Bowl. That would be great. You and the Steelers both there at the same time. Wonderful. And your first thought might be to think that someone is playing a prank on you, that these can't be real. Or maybe it's a hoax and someone is trying to get you to send them money because surely no one would send you two tickets to the Super Bowl. But as you looked closer, the tickets had all these seals and marks of authenticity. 
you examine the documents, it's on NFL letterhead, it's got phone numbers on it, and you call that phone number, and the NFL answers, and they talk to you like, no, we meant to send that to you. Those seals, those authenticating markers are meant so that you believe this thing is real. This thing that is shown here is true. And so circumcision acted as a seal for Abraham, assuring him that those promises Abraham had believed in, God sees you believed in them. They will come true, even if it seems incredibly unlikely. Now again, at this point in the service, you might be thinking, wow, this is mildly interesting for the moment, but what does circumcision have to do with any of us? And that is a very good question. Circumcision was the sign of the Old Covenant, of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. It has now been replaced, or better, fulfilled, by a sign of the New Covenant in Christ. And that sign is baptism. As one theologian writes, baptism preaches to Christians in the same way that circumcision preached to the patriarchs. It is a sign and seal of the righteousness that is ours by faith. And so remember, circumcision signifies the righteousness we have by faith. That's what baptism does. It signifies that our sins, instead of being judged for them, we are washed away. The sins are removed from us through the blood of Christ, and that we are covered and made clean and new in the righteousness of Christ. Baptism is also a seal because God is putting His name, His notarizing on us as we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so baptism is a sign and seal of the righteousness we have by faith. And like circumcision, it does not save us. The timing for the early church was very clear. People would preach, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus and be baptized, every one of you. Baptism was not the reason someone was saved. They didn't get that mixed up and say, be baptized and then figure out your sins and believe in Jesus. No, it was repent and believe and be baptized. Baptism was never the reason someone was saved. But like a sign, it points us, and like a seal, it assures us of the one who does save us. And so we see that in Abraham, and we see that in Christians today. So that's, what, that's the first thing we see in our passage, is the timing and why it matters with these rituals. Paul turns his attention then to the law in verses 13 through 17. How does the law of Moses relate to Abraham's Justification. And Paul deals with this very quickly. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, this was obvious, I hope, to Paul's readers and to us, because Abraham lived hundreds of years before Moses. So he didn't have the law yet. The chronology of Abraham way over here. Moses' way over here was clear enough, but Paul still wants to talk about it. Because it's not just keeping the law, it's doing any kind of good that can get us in timing trouble. 
He argues that it's our, our adherence to God's law that comes after faith. That Abraham received righteousness and then he obeyed. This is so our salvation depends not on what we do, but on a promise of God. That's what Paul writes in verse 14. He says, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null. The promise is void. He says, if any little bit of obedience gets you saved, then you're no longer saved by a promise. You're saved by what you have done. That was Paul's point in the New Testament reading from Galatians 5. That those Jewish Christians who are trying to get people to be circumcised and keep the law, Paul was saying, you're getting rid of faith. You're getting rid of grace. You're getting rid of Christ. You're making it all about what you do and not what He has done for you. Paul then goes on in verse 16 here. This is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Paul is saying that Abraham was not saved as someone who kept the law. He was saved before the law showed up. And so our salvation cannot be connected to how well we keep any law. It is dependent on a promise of God made by grace. And that is extended to everyone who believes in Jesus. Now, for us today, the Jewish law, again, not a major issue for us. I don't know of any of you who have said to me, hey, at the potluck, is there a kosher table? It's not been an issue. We don't have a big issue with keeping the Sabbath in the way that Jews during Jesus' time kept the Sabbath. But what we do have is kind of a cultural expectation of being a good person and avoiding certain really bad things that we would never do, but other bad people would do those things. And we can think that because I've been a pretty nice person who's avoided mostly bad things, That's why God has included me in a group of people worthy of being saved. Now, I didn't earn my salvation, but I didn't lose it by being super bad either. And we can get confused thinking something about our goodness and what we have done saves us. Paul's like, all Abraham was doing was being old. And if you want to read through Genesis 12 through 16, the stuff leading up, Abraham does a lot of stuff wrong. Really wrong. It was not the good stuff he was doing. The good stuff he did was, I trust God that you're going to do this thing that sounds crazy. That is the only kind of good he did. And so Paul is pointing out this chronology, not just for interesting historical arguments with Abraham. He's pointing it out for Christians. Because as Christians who still struggle with sin, we can get confused in our own chronology, forgetting the timing of our salvation. We can misremember certain things. Why is it that God declares me righteous? And so what I want to do is I want to show us two problems, one connected to sacraments, one connected to 
law-keeping that show we have this kind of chronological confusion. The first one is this, that there, we can sometimes have trouble with infant baptism. Now, I believe that the Bible teaches we should baptize the infant children of believers, but I also recognize that this practice can lead to people having timing troubles with their salvation. Because children who are baptized when they are very young and don't even remember it can grow up in the church and thinking, well, I mean, I grew up here. They let me be here. God must be cool with me. I'm good, right? Perhaps they think they're saved because, well, my parents believe, and I guess I believe too. And they said I was baptized at some point, so I must be good, right? But these are faulty assumptions about timing. Because the sign in that instance occurs before what is signified. Because baptism signifies that salvation comes from believing in Jesus. But infants can't believe in Jesus yet. And it seems like when we baptize babies, we got the timing all mixed up. Why would we do that? We saw in our Old Testament reading that Abraham was commanded to circumcise his infant sons. God commanded him, it seemed, do things out of order. What? God, why would you do that? God, why would you say that this sign of circumcision is because you are righteous by your faith? Oh, and that eight-year-old squirming thing over there? Do it to him too. He can't believe yet. Well, the reason is because the sign can either point to what is present or what should be present. The sign of infant baptism is meant to point beyond itself to the fact that this child needs to grow into belief in Jesus. If you look in verse 12, he writes about being merely circumcised. That we do not want to be merely baptized, but we want to share in the faith, to walk in the footsteps of our father Abraham. That's what we want our children to do. We don't merely want them to get water splashed on them at some point and think that's good enough. We want them to grow into a faith that we have in Jesus. A faith that sees only He can save us from our sins. And so I get that baptizing babies can create some timing confusion, but it's very consistent with how they circumcised young boys in Israel. The sign was given to the children of believers. And the reason for that is we want our kids to grow up thinking this someday. I pray for my four boys that they will grow up thinking this, that not only can I not remember when I was baptized, but I cannot remember a time that I never believed in Jesus either. Because my parents and my church have taught me from such a young age that I need to trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I am thankful that God has given me that same faith my parents have. That is my hope. I don't want them growing up thinking, well, someone splashed water on me when I was a baby, so I'm good. No! We want them to grow up and have the faith that that signifies. I was baptized as a baby. I can't remember it. And yet my parents, my church is growing up, taught me 
to have the same faith that they all had, trusting not the sign, but what was signified. So we can run into what seems like this timing issue, and yet it is meant to point us in the same way. So that's one timing problem we run into. The other timing problem is we have a trouble sometimes with obeying God's laws. Now again, I'm pro-obeying God's laws, just if there's any confusion there, just as I'm pro-infant baptism. But sometimes when we obey God for a long period of time, we forget back when we weren't obeying God. We can forget that, hey, He saved us because we were sinners, not because we were good people. And we forget that we can't earn or keep our own salvation. You see, over time, as someone believes in Jesus, we learn more of God's Word and we want to obey His commands. And the Spirit hopefully works in us a desire to obey over time and we grow in godliness. But the temptation can come to think that we've always been this way. And we're really good. And now God loves us for this and that's why He saves us. That you can be good for so long that you forget you were saved while you were a sinner by God's grace. This confusion of timing can be a problem. Yes, we should all strive to obey, but no one is saved by obeying. Listen, listen to verse 15 from Paul's, uh, from Paul's chapter 4 in Romans. He writes, The law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's saying if you think you are going to be strengthened by knowing more of the law. Guess what the law does? The law doesn't show you here are all the easy steps to be saved by God. The law shows you, oh man, I was on like step 10 and there's 10,000 steps. Like, I guess I am saved by grace because I can't keep all of those all the time. And so over time, instead of trusting our obedience more and more, we should be led to trust God's grace more and more as we learn just how far short we are falling of God's standard. And so these timing issues, which are good things, infant baptism, good thing, obeying God's law, good thing, what we can run into is forgetting that these good things grow out of salvation instead of leading to salvation. Because it is only God who has the power to create new life. That's what Paul writes at the end of our passage. He says, God is the one who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. It is not baptism that gives new life and calls into existence faith that was not there before. Only God can do that. Only what baptism signifies can do that. It is not obeying God's law that brings faith into existence. No, only God can bring faith into existence. Only God can make it so we obey Him. Abraham is the perfect example of us, of that for us. In our Old Testament reading, God goes to Abraham and says, I'm changing your name. I want to call you father of many nations, 99-year-old man who doesn't have kids. And you're just like, like, do I have to put that on my name tag now? Because I'm, like, I'm not a father of many nations. And yet God had the power to say, no, no, no. 
I'm going to make what isn't in existence right now. It's going to come into existence. Not because I did this sign on you. Not because you're going to obey and get it done yourself. But because I am God and I bring those things into existence. That is what has the power. God has the power to save. And these other things point us back continually to the God who He alone cannot count our sins against us and count righteousness to us as we trust in these powerful promises of God Almighty. Let us come to Him in prayer this morning. Lord, we thank You that You are the God who brings to life things that are dead. That we know the Bible says that apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins. That nothing, not baptism, not obedience, can change that deadness in our sins. Only Christ can make us alive. And so God, we thank You for Your life-changing power. May we never forget the timing of our salvation. That You start it, and oh God, You bring it to completion as well. And with that in mind, Lord, help us to point others to the fact that only God can save And help us to pray that You would save others, saving them by Your mighty power and Your promises in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.